Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the first episode of 2020. Hope you had a nice break and have had a little bit of time to plan for the year ahead. Now, joining me on this episode, episode 186, is Sudhu Arumagam. He is the co-founder and the chief risk officer of cryptocurrency futures exchange CoinFlex. Though prior to this, Sudhu spent near 20 years in various trading roles, mostly dealing in options on indices and single stocks, other exotic derivatives, and some fixed income. We start things off talking about his early days and his experiences in London's life trading pit. Sudhu recalls meeting and trading with DRW founder Don Wilson, who he described as a force to be reckoned with, and this was before his firm became the global powerhouse that it is today. Sudhu also speaks about heading a small institutional trading team within Merrill Lynch, which is pretty interesting. Then in the later part, we speak more about crypto and the efforts of CoinFlex to become a market-leading exchange. Before we get into it, there is just one thing I'd like to make you aware of in order to be as transparent as possible. So many of you will already know CoinFlex is a sponsor of Chat with Traders and have been for a while now. But in November, we actually entered into a 12-month sponsorship deal. And as a part of this, to sweeten the deal, I offered to do one episode with one of the CoinFlex team members. So this is that episode. And I think Sudhu is a natural fit, given his extensive trading background. So with that being said, let's get on with the show. Here is Sudhu Arumagam for episode 186. Starting out, uh, you actually began trading on the floor of the Life Exchange in London. Am I correct there? That's correct. Yeah, I um, I studied at university in London and uh, economics, and then uh, one evening I saw an ad for trainee derivatives traders in the in the FT, and knowing very little about it, I applied for it, and uh, they asked me a bunch of bunch of maths questions, uh, rapid fire, or sort of three sets of interviews, and next thing I know, I was uh, 
standing in the middle of the life floor one Monday morning. So who was that that which you were working for? Yeah, so in, in the original uh, options trading business, there was dominated by independent uh, trading businesses. And there were three main ones at the time. Um, and they were a firm called O'Connor and Associates, which became Swiss Bank's UBS's derivatives arms. There was a firm called Chicago Research and Trading, which became the derivatives arms of Bank of America. And the third one was the firm that I joined called Cooper Neff and Associates, which became the derivatives arm of uh, BNP, Bank National Paribas. Okay. And what were you trading once you um, came onto life? So you start off by being a clerk, uh, like you do on the the Merck or the CME uh, or the CBOT, and I was a clerk on the Gilt option, the Gilt futures, government bond futures pit, um, and then my first trading role as a junior option trader was in the FTSE hundred index options pit. Okay, so the index did they operate in in slightly different ways? I imagine obviously there, there'd be different nuances between trading uh, bonds and then trading a, an equity index. Yeah, this is one of the kind of interesting questions and points about uh, options tradings. Actually, but I would say about 80% of options tradings are uniform around irrespective of the product you trade. And that's because they're very, you know, it's a very complex um, product to trade and handle and risk manage. And so that skill set sits independently of the underlying. And I would say the other 20% or so would be kind of specialist product skills. So, so if you swapped between FX, bonds, uh, fixed income and equities, you are, you know, you are learning about the new underlying, but your fundamental skill set, it's, it's uh, transportable, which interestingly is probably the other way around to normal futures trading. Because if you, like yourself, are a big equity trader, you know, and I gave you a, I would say, hey, Aaron, here's the, you know, the list of uh, drop down trading connections to 50 largest government bonds out there. You'd be like, what is this? You know, it makes no sense to me. Whereas an option guy can easily uh, uh, pollinate across different asset classes. And what was your experience like when you, when you did begin to start trading? Like, did you pick it up fairly quickly or how'd you go? Yeah, Kubernetes and, and and the other American option houses were very kind of a brutal learning house. Uh, they they you know for every ten tra- uh, junior tra- clerks they hired, they would fire probably six or seven. And so if you made it through the end of the trading program, it meant that you had the skill set ready to to be uh, to, to be. Uh, badged in effect and that means to get into the pit alone and the reason for that was very simple these were the days before uh electronic trading in these markets and so when you kind of wore the your company logo and you went you went into these option pits or futures pits you could trade any size you wanted because the risk management is so poor from a clearing perspective that it would be at least a day before anyone would figure out something was wrong and so these uh houses when you kind of wore their badges and traded need to be sure that you would not uh a crack up under pressure and B totally understand the risk that you are putting on. Can you just break that down a little further? Like as you described it, the poor risk management. So the trades weren't wouldn't uh, be logged anywhere until sometimes twenty four hours later. Did I understand that right? Yeah, not quite as that. But let me give an example of how it works right now, which will help. Um, like for example, if you were trading futures um, on a on a platform and you were going through a prime broker, you will be pre trade risk managed. So you would submit a buy button and somewhere in the system, there'll be a check against your credit, your collateral, your limits. And then if all of those gets ticked off, the order gets then put onto the exchange. And and if you get filled, you see it in your account. 
when you're trading on the floor, there's no pre-trade risk because it's open outcry. So a broker walks into the pit, you make him a price, he he trades with you, he tells you a quantity or you agree a quantity. He has no idea whether you've got the funds in your account or not at that point. And let's say you trade it at 7 a.m., it'll take till about 7 p.m. that evening before your trade ticket gets processed into the system. And if there was something wrong, i.e. you'd breach your limits, you'd only find out the next morning when you got your, uh, a call from your clearer or, or you're on your statement saying there's a margin call. So you can imagine the, the, the time lag between trade to, to first alert. You know, it's quite significant. Did you ever have any situations like that where you breached your limits? Uh, there will be situations where the clearer would change the margin parameters and then he would say you would have to kind of submit more margin in the morning. But but there was minor tweaks around that, but but nothing more. Nothing too serious? No. <laughs> so how long did this go on for? How long were you actually trading on the floor? I was trading on the floor for, for about eight years. And gradually during that period, more and more products were going to electronic trading. And the options were the very, very much the last products to go, to, to go upstairs because there was a lot of concerns at the point about how easily... Uh, you know, options with multiple strikes and multiple months could get transported to an electronic platform. Eight years, that seems like quite a long time to be trading on the floor. Did you enjoy that experience? Uh, yeah, I absolutely did. Uh, it never even felt like work because you would kind of go there and the buzz of, of you know, people surrounding you and shouting with you were, was incredible. And, and as a trader, it was actually the easiest period to, to trade because you saw the flow. Um, if you're a, a trader right now or a market maker in an electronic environment, you're kind of sat in your little office watching a screen with the, where there's no real indication of flow, um, direction, size, what the brokers are working, what are people looking to do. Whereas when you were in the pit, everything had to go through that pit. So if you stood there from morning till noon, you would get a really, really good feeling for, for what the market was doing. It was a lot easier to be A, profitable, but B, to better risk manage your portfolio because you sort of had, knew a lot of the lurking risks that were around there. Whereas on the electronic world, you know, you're very, very siloed where you are. So in, in that case, how did you find the, the transition you know, once you left the floor uh, and went to electronic trading on the screens? So we were really lucky because for option traders, because it was so complex, even though options became, uh, went onto the screens, for, the, for a good few years afterwards, like five, six, even to this day maybe, a lot of options trade on the phone. And so it was simulated like the floor where brokers would call you up and ask for your thoughts, prices, views. So you were getting a, a feel for what is going on out there. The markets that were very, very difficult were stocks and futures because these guys went from huge pits with hundreds of traders to sort of individual point and click. And you would get, you know, particularly the life floor. And I've heard very similar stories on, this, on the Merck and the CBOT where huge profitable traders on the floor went upstairs and basically, you know, lost a bunch of money or could never make money again. And so they would kind of retire or leave the business. Uh, but for option traders, the, the, the kind of longevity of it was, was there for, for, for a much longer period. Okay, so yeah, you didn't really struggle too much with that. I'm not sure where this fits into the timeline, but I think it's somewhere around about here, which you uh, became introduced to Don Wilson. Uh, and some listeners will know Don Wilson is uh, the founder and the man behind DRW, massive uh, proprietary trading firm out of Chicago, and now has a global presence with like 500 or so 
people. Yeah, tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, so the, one of the interest, interesting transitions uh, as the years went by on the floor was that um, as the American market sort of became very, very uh, uh, tight from an arbitrage perspective, some of the bigger American traders from these U.S. houses started coming to Europe themselves because previous to this period, they would sort of train their juniors, send them out, and then kind of stay back in Chicago. One fine day, this this uh, American gent turned up in the pit and said, uh, hey, I'm Don Wilson of DRW. And of course, you know, 50 guys are like, looked at him and then carried on chatting amongst ourselves because we've never heard of him and didn't really care, quite frankly. But it soon became apparent that, you know, this guy was a force to be reckoned with. And, uh, and that was my first introduction as competitors. And then uh, towards the end of the the floor period, uh, as I came off it, I, I went to actually to work with Don, and and we actually became flatmates. He was my boss, and and he was uh, growing the um, the DRW's European side of the business, which uh, which is still hugely, you know, as you said, a huge global business now in Singapore, London, and and and, and Chicago. What gave it away that he was a, a force to be reckoned with? Uh, the the sort of size and certainty that he traded with, whereas we were. We were taught to sort of keep it small, go for big edge trades only, and kind of recycle. You know, effectively, it's sort of an HFT type model, but in the pit. You know, do 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 fifty to a hundred small trades, make decent money on every one of them. A few losing trades, and then you kind of go home flat and happy. Whereas whereas Don was very much the mode of this thing is mispriced, and I'm going to sell it, and I'm not going to buy it back till it's fairly priced. Whereas the way we were trained is that you sell something at, you know, if you thought if you thought an option was worth ten, you would sell it at twelve, and if someone offered it at eleven, well, you know what, you've made a tick, take it back. Whereas Don is like, why would I pay eleven? It's worth ten, um, which was a very change of, you know, real mindset change. So in a, in a way, you were very much a scalpy type of trader. Yes. Everyone was on the floor because it's the way you were kind of trained. Whereas Don was a scalpy brand trader, but around a massive position. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And did that influence your trading style in any way? It did actually, because when we moved upstairs and I went to work for Don, I started to realize that that we were, you know, for for years that we'd left, you know, edge inverted commas on, on the in the pit, you know, and and we, you know, that we should have done sort of so much better than we did. Uh, but and so you sort of take that skill set away and start start learning about longer term trading, uh, which you know Don was a and still is, I guess, a master of. Obviously, looking at where Don is today and the presence that DRW has, uh, you did say it was soon apparent after he arrived that uh, you know he was a force to be reckoned with. Was there anything which signaled to you or anything special about him that you observed, which kind of gave it away that? He was on to something much bigger. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. It, what it is actually, there was one, you know, one definite character trait, Don, which was, you know, as as sort of floor traders and very intelligent and kind of successful floor traders, you know, we would get to work very early, you know, six in the morning, pits were open at seven a.m. You know, just as he would do, and by five o'clock, the pit would the pits would end, and and I think it's the same story even in the U.S. And you know, by six o'clock, you'd be in the pub. You know, you've you've sort of put in a really long day. You're hot, you're sore throated, you know, and and you're ready to to have a beer and go home and chill and start again. Whereas with Don, the thing that gave it away was that, you know, he would at the, at the close he would then go upstairs and pour over charts and data for hours on end. 
and and back test and 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 you know really get down to the nitty gritty of it. Whereas you know what frustrated him about all his British traders is that you know we'll be in the pub below the building, and uh, <laughs> so I guess that was just the the culture at the time. Well, I think it was the same. Sure, but it was the same culture on the when I used to visit the, the CBOT and CME. I mean, they used to finish at four o'clock and we're in the in the in the bar local bars by four fifteen. So it wasn't even a US European thing. It was just a you know floor trader mentality versus someone trying to build a huge business. I would suspect, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty impressive. One day I might be lucky enough to get him on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, you've you've got some of his team on the podcast before, I believe, right? Michael Moransky. So yeah, uh, Bobby Cho. Bobby um, Cho and uh, Kim from DRWVC. Slowly work my way up. <laughs> now, one of the interesting things about you is you actually headed up a trading team at Merrill Lynch. I'm not sure if this came directly afterwards, but uh, I'd be really keen to sort of uh, dig into this a little bit. This this trading team, which you were a, a part of and which you headed up at Merrill Lynch, uh, was that in London still? That that was in London, but this was now switching back to the equities world again, and particularly uh, single stocks trading. Uh, okay. And- are you talking about trading natural equities or are you tra- talking about trading options on the equities? Options and structured products on the equities, yeah. Okay. So what's a, what's a structured product? Is that just options or? Yeah, just fancy options that have kind of uh, uh, funny terms and interesting terms like cliques and knockouts and knock-ins and all kinds of forwards and uh, variant swaps. But, but they're, they're basically exotic options. So vanilla options and exotic options. Are they OTC products or do they trade on a, a live market? Those ones are all OTC. Okay. So who do you trade those with? Uh, mostly uh, hedge funds and family offices. Okay. And so why would you trade those uh, as opposed to the, the options that you can trade on a, a screen in the, in the live market? Um, the, the the counterparty, the clients would like to trade that because they could be more bespoke. Uh, if you if you traded li- listed options on the floor, they expire on a certain day of a certain month at a certain time, whereas the OTC structures can be custom built for for anyone. It's fascinating that sort of stuff because you just I don't know as a retail punter, you just have no idea about how complex these products get, which you have had exposure to. Yeah, I mean. Well, the, here's the funny part. If you don't know where it is, how do you know the the pricing you're getting is correct, right? So this is the, you know, having been on the bank side of it, I would never do one of these structures with a bank because it's, it's there is no um, clarity in where fair value is and where marks are. Whereas at least with listed options, it may not fit your exact time, month or, or, or day, but at least you know there are multiple players providing multiple prices that you could keep an eye on. You know, so price discovery is... is, is uh, way way better were these uh these otc uh trades uh this is probably a bit of a a, a newbie question but were they more profitable like were they they sound like they were there was perhaps a little bit more risk involved was there also a bit more potential profit and upside yeah i mean there was um uh, definitely a lot more profit and upside um in terms of risk the reason why they are more riskier is that because when you do an OTC trade, you're trading, let's say, against a particular family. Now, they may be a very wealthy family, but you kind of, you know, your credit department kind of does a due diligence on them, but effectively you're relying on other people to settle the trade. Whereas if you did a listed trade, if you and I trade against each other, we would still trade, 
you know, via a central clearing party, it could be the London Clearing House or the or Urex Clearing, so or ASX Clearing in Australia. So you knew there was certainty for for delivery and, and settlement. Whereas with OTC trades, uh, you know, there is that extra risk factor. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, but I guess just winding back a little bit um, to uh, more specifics about the team. Uh, was this a team which already existed when you came into the role, or was it something which you put together? It was a team that was all, that already existed, but it was a team that was primarily focused on on OTC trading, and the world was moving more towards sort of listed trading because of sort of certainty on margin, and a lot of the banks were basically bulking up their teams around listed options traders. Um, and so I was part of a bunch of people that was hired by Merrill's to, to sort of run different books, effectively. Okay. And how many people were uh, a part of the team which you were overseeing? There was four of us on our team. Uh, in total, in equity derivatives, it must have been about 50 people across the different uh, groups. Okay. But they were all sort of siloed groups. Yeah, I mean, you're paid together and you're P&L'd and risk managed together, in, you know, loosely, but but yes. Okay. So, um, the focus of the team was to get more involved in listed uh, options. Um, can you talk a bit about the type of, the type of strategies which you uh, ultimately were trading? Sure. It wasn't very uh, dissimilar to the floor, to be honest. It was, but obviously on a much larger scale. Um and you would, uh, it was basically flow trading. So you'd have customers buying and selling different stocks at stock options, and you would try to sort of risk manage and trade against all, all the customers. And so if a customer would come in and a client of Merrill's would come and ask for you a, a stock in an options trade in, in Deutsche Telekom, for example, that you know they were also asking Deutsche Bank and probably also asking Goldman's. And so all three of you would kind of race to a make the right price but b also sort of try and win the trade if you can because obviously the bank culture very much was around you know keeping your clients happy does that not come under the category of otc still uh no because you were quoting to the client but the crossing of the trade uh would be would happen on exchange so you would you you would know who the customer is and you would trade with them. But then both sides of the trade, if you were the buyer, you would enter into the UREX system and the seller would enter in the UREX system and it would get mashed on UREX. Okay. Were you ever doing trades where you would post, uh, you know, your orders in the order book, which everyone can see? We, we did because uh, banks were going more and more into the kind of automated uh, HFT type model for, for options. Whereas obviously at that point it was huge in, in the underlying stock, but the option side of it was still very much kind of voice and, and, but that world was changing towards HFT. And now, of course, if you, if you look at any option screen or major option screens in the world, they're all HFT based, you know, that there, there's very little voice involved. So options have taken, you know, were 10, 15 years behind every other product, but there it's, it's a full blown HFT business now, as I understand it. Yeah. So that, that, that shift, if you will, that kind of came in a little bit after your time? Yes. It started around there and then became much, much more aggressive. So, so for example, you know, I, I think I, was, I, I met someone the other day who, was, who had just left Merrill's, who was there at the same time as me. You know, there was, I think at the time, like I said to you, just over 50 people across sort of equity or indices and single stocks. And, and that same, those same roles are done by eight people now, as I understand it. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. I guess that that makes sense. That's why it's all going. Yeah. Now, was this uh, what you'd call proprietary trading at Merrill's? No, I would. I would say it's called flow trading because Merrill's and the banks also had separate proprietary desks that wouldn't see the customer trades. Who, who would just, you know, go long or short because of of, of their models or, or their kind of view on the market, and they would be Chinese walled on a different part of the bank. Okay. Okay, so that was entirely separate. Yeah. So you weren't really, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, what was the ultimate goal of your team? Was it to generate, oh, that sounds really silly, but was it to generate as much P&L as possible? It, it, it is. It's sort of a, it's a sort of a hard and soft metric. The, the, you know, the hard metric is, is P&L, so you've got a budget. You get customer feedback, or the salesman says, "You know, you oh, that's really great. The customer's happy." You kind of get this sort of soft pat on the back for that as well. So it's it's a it's it's really primarily PNL based, but there was also the you know happy customer is is a good is a is a great trade as well. So gotcha. What would you say are some of the most uh, interesting or perhaps memorable might be a better word uh, most memorable moments from from working on the team? Is there anything which jumps to the front of your mind? I think it was the you know the fact that the actual size that would go down on some of these trades and the length of trades you know we were we were coming off the sort of even the DRW you know if you did a one year trade if you would sit there and say oh wow you know that's a really risky trade I you know it's, it's one year away I don't know what to do with it you know how how should we handle it we need to be careful and then you kind of go to these banks and you start doing five year trades when you say a five year trade can you just break that down. Sure. So these are option expiries. And so, you know, customers would come in and ask for you for, for an index option on the footsies, for example, on our desk or, or on the desk next to me. And, and, and they could be, you know, asking for footsie option quotes five years out from today or three years out from today. So these are re- extremely long-term options that we're trading as, as well as the short-term ones. Whereas if you come from a market-making and prop trading background from these like DRW, you know, you wouldn't even consider getting into some of those trades because of the risk group, you know, kind of that goes with it on the option side. So the customers who are seeking these five-year trades, for example, why are they doing that? Uh, Because they're sort of asset managers or fund managers have that, or pension funds that have very, very long-term liabilities and assets to manage. So they're not looking at you know, one year or one month, one year trades, they want to start with, they want to do sort of replication or hedging strategies across their portfolios over, over years. So is it, would you say it's typically more of a, a hedge type of trade, like to protect some of the downside? Yes. Yes, it would, because it's, 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 uh, the sizes are large, but the edges are large as well. So if you were a kind of a hedge fund or prop trading hedge fund that wanted to, you know, who thought, for example, that the you know stock indices were overvalued and was going to go down, you wouldn't pick a five-year trade because you wouldn't get the size and liquidity that you you would want to get in and out constantly. So you would pick way shorter-term trades because, you know, in in terms of liquidity and volumes, all the volume was in the shorter-dated sub-one-year sector. Maybe a little bit similar to that last question. Were there any key lessons you learned from this point in your trading career? Really, it was around position management, and and uh, you you started to sort of really try to you know you, you get additional skills around trying to manage you know a portfolio of short and longer dated, because when you were on the 
you know, your mentality as a as a flow trader on the floor, particularly and and upstairs, was that you know you kind of make a trading decision. If it does, if it goes against you, you can sort of cut it quickly. Well, once you have a three or five year position, you can't even cut it for weeks at a time. You had to become way way better at long term position management. I don't mean three or five year position management, but although the trades were that long, but you had to know and adjust for the fact that you may not be able to reverse or close this trade for for weeks at a time. Yeah, so if you had taken on, uh, just sticking with the example of the, the five-year expiry, yeah. if you had taken the other side of that trade uh, and you did want to get rid of it at some point, how would you how would you manage that? You would have to manage it sort of piecemeal, like you would you would start sort of deconstructing that trade into into smaller trades that other hedge funds might might be interested in. So you would ask your sales desk to go out there and say, now, this asset manager bought this trade. Now, can you see if anyone else wants to take the other side of it? Someone wants one part of the structure or not? So you had to, beca- you had to become very, very creative. So a big part of it was obviously relationships. Relationships were very, very important for this because your competitors most likely had the same position as you on the street. So you couldn't go to Goldman's or Deutsche or Barclays or Credit Suisse. You had to kind of, because they would have the same thing. So they would just market even further away because they had no interest in putting more on. So you would have to become creative with your sales guys and kind of, you know, literally go on road trips to, you know, multiple off European fund offices and start selling the stuff out to them explaining the structure and telling them, you know, finding out what their needs are and, and then structuring it in such a way that it gets you out of your risk. Yeah. I mean, it's a world I know very little about, but um, it's certainly fascinating. It, it is because, you know, look at, look at what you trade and, and a lot of your viewers trades. I mean, you know, if they want to go from short to long, they're a few clicks away from it. They don't have to get on an aeroplane and go and pitch using PowerPoint. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Um, when did you begin to get an interest in, in crypto? Obviously, that's what you're deeply involved with today. Uh, when did that start to, to come into mind? Yeah, so for, I'm, I'm a very late guy into crypto and or, or if people you ask right now might say I'm, I'm, I'm an oldie, but I actually just got into it in, in early 2017 because I started reading about how 
exchange, crypto exchanges were coming out with derivatives products. So I wasn't actually that much fascinated by crypto as a as a currency or a, a coin, but a more re- literally how this would play with what I knew, which was futures and options. And uh, so I was kind of going around London at the time, looking around um, to, to meetups and understanding more about crypto. And, and that was my first introduction. Yeah, it's it's interesting because if we look at like, you know, your career and your experience uh, with trading, it's been mostly with uh, options and derivatives products. You've been doing that for, I think, about 20 years or so before you actually came across to crypto. So, you know, was there was there a part of you which felt as though you had built up so much experience in uh, options and derivatives um, that it was re- a really big commitment to turn your attention towards a new market? Uh, it was actually the reverse. I actually thought, you know what, I knew so much about the old market that that I would give give it a six months and see how how I got on, see and see whether I was actually right about this kind of fascinating emerging asset class and products that have been built on top of it. So it was kind of a quick, you know, let's see how he goes kind of thing, and I've been hooked since. <laughs> six months has turned into what two, three years now. Correct. Um, and so obviously you found yourself at Coinfloor. Uh, now, if I understand correctly, Coinfloor was. Well, it's it's now Coinflex, but when it was Coinfloor, was uh, pretty much the the London UK version of what Coinflex is today. Is that is that right? Coinflex. Um, so my co-founder at Coinflex is Mark Lamb, uh, and he was one of the co-founders of Coinfloor. So Coinflex was an effective uh, spin-off from Coinfloor, where where Mark and I uh, spun the business, bought the business out from Coinfloor spun it out and moved out uh, to Asia to launch it. So Coinfloor was a crypto exchange in London though, yeah? They still are, yes. Oh, it's still there. Okay. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. How come that went down? What was the motive there? Why why move the business or, or take the business to, to Asia? Yeah, because it's it's uh, it became very clear to us um, and the vast majority of crypto taking or retail business comes out of Asia every day, you know, so, so crypto is a very interesting market in, for, in terms of makers and takers. And I, I don't know if whether you use those terms in the traditional space, but I certainly didn't before I did crypto, but there was kind of the market makers and liquidity providers, which tend to be very sort of Western type based businesses. And then you've got the retail side of it, who are the takers, aggressors, they are very much Asian retail. And, and, and but the vast majority is of futures derivatives business comes out on the taking side, comes out of China, Korea, Japan, uh, Vietnam, Turkey. So by moving out to Asia, it meant that we can kind of be close to this customer base that we really didn't know much about because I was coming out of a, uh, the traditional space. And so you know that these big firms trading, Western trading firms out there trade crypto and I, you know, you could get relationships with them fairly easily. But we were like sort of scratching your heads thinking, right, how do I get closer to our retail taker base? And to do that, we spoke to you know, some of our shareholders were, were crypto guys based out of Asia. And they were like, look, you, know, you guys have to be here because the, the, the customers need to know that you're committed to, to their part of the world. And that's how we ended up here. Had you spent any time in Asia just personally before, this, before the move? I had, I had done. I, I personally loved you know, traveling around Asia, and I lived in Singapore for a while as well in the past. But the majority of my life has been in London. But but 
but I had flavors of Asia. So I knew from a sort of living perspective, it would be very, very simple, but, but obviously the whole unknown was the business side. Yeah. Okay. And the same goes for Mark as well, I presume. Uh, for, for Mark, was actually the opposite. He had no experience of Asia from a living perspective. He was very much kind of the a Californian, Boston, and Londoner based. Ah, uh, okay, okay, cool. Um, and you touched on uh, investors uh, just before, and that's actually one of the things I found uh, really fascinating about CoinFlex is that the high-profile investors which you did have on board. One of those being uh, TT or Trading Technologies. How did that relationship come about? Because it's very interesting, like Trading Technologies is a software company and they're kind of pioneers in this space, especially in the the futures and options world. And I know they've been getting more and more into crypto by offering it through their platform, et cetera. How come it made sense for them to actually become a a partner of CoinFlex? Yeah, so for, I think from their perspective, they were, you know, they are, as you say, the largest fixed income ISV or software vendor in the world. I think I read somewhere that a trillion dollars of of uh, fixed income flow, uh, futures flow, goes through their their infrastructure on a daily basis, and they are market leaders. So they were looking for a way to sort of differentiate and add to their sort of product offerings, and they were started investigating crypto kind of unknown to us. At the same time, uh, we were looking at uh, launching this exchange and what we knew we were good at was uh, the matching engine, the margining, the the kind of operations and the whole exchange running business. What, uh, what we knew we weren't good at was at front ends. And, you know, like a lot of crypto exchanges, um, the front end has just got, you know, you log into your system and it's got a big fat buy and sell button, a graph and not a lot le- not a lot else. And so we were looking for a software partner that could fill, the, fill that space with multiple order types, exciting stuff and, you know, ladders and brackets and all kinds of different ways of managing risk and trading. And, and uh, we started having a conversation with TT and, and soon become became apparent that you know we were going to be great partners because we kind of both ticked what the other wanted to do um, or, or wanted to have. And that's how the partnership was born. Yeah, I think that's really cool that you have linked up with TT. And, you know, in my eyes, it, it added a lot of credibility to CoinFlex as well when I was, you know, beginning to have those early conversations with, with Mark about uh, potential sponsorship and that sort of thing. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the feedback that you've had and the response from the TT interface because I understand that it might not have been received quite as it was intended to because, you know, you're bringing crypto traders who are used to, you know, the sort of um, interface that you see on any kind of crypto exchange. Like they all look very similar. And then I guess if someone comes across to CoinFlex and they use the TT interface, they're not really as familiar with how that all works and some of the features that are available. No, no, exactly. It was it was a very very interesting sort of baptism of fire because we went live. We turned on. We were so excited. We turned on the TT screens. There it was, our white label. You know, and of course, in our first few customers, manual customers who who uh, looked at it, they were like. Well, what the hell is this? We have no idea how to use this. So we're like, oh no, well, you know, we'll teach you. Here's a ladder. They're like, well, we don't want a ladder. Where's the buy sell button? You know, and uh, so they, so we were like, okay. So we went from this sort of razzmatazz launch to now panicking, thinking like, how do we 
um, A, simplify the TT product, but B, educate people. And what we've done uh, in the subsequent to that is that we, we have effectively created our own UI, which sits along TT, but and it's a crypto native UI. So it looks very similar to, to every other exchange, as you say. Um, uh, and what's good about it is that you start trading on that sort of simplified platform. And then the whole time we're sort of te teaching you through videos and, and uh, blog posts about all the things that you could do on the TT uh, uh interface and and then as these guys sort of trade more we graduate them across to the to the tt ladders and 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 all the functionalities that they have and so that more recently you know with the launch of our, our native app as well it's worked out really really well because you have this segment of crypto traders who trade a couple of times a week who are, who are very very happy with the crypto native ui and then you've got this daily uh, scalpers and high-frequency retail traders who are like, this is the best thing we've seen since sliced bread with regards to TT. Yeah, so I think it's worthwhile me asking you, like, why should someone who's an active crypto trader uh, consider using the, the TT interface as, a spo as opposed to the, you know, the, the interface that you see on every other exchange? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I can tell you something around one particular order type that we're sort of doing a lot of fun and competitions and trading games around, and we've called it the bracket competitions. And it's a it's a TT term. It's a and if you're if you're an individual trader right now, you would uh, and your mental processes you want to buy buy I don't know Bitcoin here, and then in your mind you would have a, a take profit level where if, if you said it went there, I would definitely sell it. And you would have a stop loss level where you said, you know what, if it goes there, I'm going to cut this position. Well, TT bracket orders does both in one go. And the beauty about it is that you have to define the take profit and the stop before you enter the order. And so what it does is that it teaches you to do really, really good risk managed trades. And no one's telling you where to put your stops or take your profits. But the point is you have to define it, which takes emotion away from the trade. And so we discovered TT brackets because we were playing around it with ourselves and thought, oh, wow, this is the most disciplined way to trade. And so what it does is that we educate crypto traders who trade occasionally or who are nervous about crypto because of the volatility of it. And we take them from that zone to a safe zone where they could actually put trades on and and risk manage it from a from a loss and profit perspective. And and these are called TT brackets. And we've actually started a whole series of competitions which start in the next few weeks uh, around bracket competitions. And it's basically around ROI and volume and trading brackets. And and you know and it's a way of basically educating customers onto the platform to say, look, you know, crypto futures trading are not dangerous as long as you're disciplined and and you're you you set your your levels up front okay and i'm curious to know a little bit more about these competitions but just before we do that um one of the cool things with the the tt interface is that you can trade uh as you mentioned a little bit earlier directly by clicking on the ladder or the yep. uh you know clicking on the price levels uh, i think ladder is a is a tt term that's something you can't do on other crypto exchanges, right? Yes, because you've got you. Well, crypto. Ex there's some exchanges who are coming out who I think have co who may have copied the TT ladder because they know how popular it is, and, and there is one in 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 testing right now. But essentially, the vast majority, or almost all, don't have ladders. And and what's good about ladders is that um, 
it's point and click. So you set your default sizes. You can see where in the order book there are gaps. So you can place your orders there or you can directly aggress and just take lift offers. And you can cancel working orders and move working orders by just dragging your mouse around the order. So you want to move it down three ticks. You don't have to cancel your order like you do on any other exchange and re-enter it again. Here you just sort of you click highlight it and you just drag it down on the ladder itself. So it's it's very, very fast, very easy to use. And once you get used to the sort of, you know, dealing with it, uh, what's interesting is that I spoke to a couple of our high frequency retail traders recently, and they don't even have buy sell buttons on their on their uh, uh, GUI anymore. They've just sort of deleted it out. So all they have is a huge graph fills and a massive ladder in the middle. Yeah, I think once you actually like gave it a try and got used to it, I don't think you'd ever go back. No, no, I think you're right. So, yeah, you mentioned these competitions. How do they work? And what's the, how come you're doing these competitions as well? You know, the crypto markets have been in a bear market. And so right now, you'll, if you go to a lot of exchanges, you'll see sort of crypto trading competitions. Now, these, these, these sort of trading competitions are, are popular. And, and when we were launching, we were kind of watching these, but they're all very much sort of, you know, ROI based. And, 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 so effectively, it would just incentivize you to, you know, move some Bitcoin in or, or Bitcoin Cash or Ethereum and, and take out as much leverage as possible and just go for it. Or in crypto terms, YOLO it, you know. And, uh, and what we wanted to do was sort of encourage trading, but, but around brackets. And of course, if you keep going around and telling people, hey, have a look at this bracket tool. They were like, listen, we've got no interest. We're playing, you know, we're in the middle of some competition. So we thought, you know what, let's create our own competitions around brackets. And so it sort of served two purposes. One was it helps us get customers interested in looking at us, but it also helped us educating people as the safest way to trade. Yeah, it's funny. I was like, I was talking to one of my mates the other day about uh, these crypto exchanges and Coinflex obviously being one of them uh, that, that run these competitions and they're given away. Uh, it's tether and is the prize correct on our exchange, but it could be anything. Yes, it could be yeah. any other crypto as well. And I was like, you know, you don't really see like uh, Nasdaq or Nizi or these types of exchanges or CME doing it. But then I kind of thought about it a little bit more, and it's it's not too uh, different from how you know some of these big exchanges offer rebates to large market makers. Is it? It's not, but here's the thing, Aaron. Here's the thing about crypto that I find fascinating. So the reason why NASDAQ or ICE don't run competitions is that they don't face the customer. So if you're ICE, you're facing a bunch of big brokers that have to come to you anyway. Mm. So now, if you look at those brokers, for them, the, the customer's customer effectively, for those guys to get their customers, they will be offering, they would offer all kinds of things like, you know, you know, if you look at the CFT market in the UK, or if, you know, I don't know, 50 quid free bet, you know, put 50 quid in, we'll match it for another 50 quid for your first new account, you know, and, you know, little things like that. Uh, whereas in crypto, the beauty about it is that customers can choose where they trade and they come on directly. Um, and the number of benefits that come with that, it means that, you know, if I don't know if you ever, you know, it's a great exercise for you, try and trade carbon futures on a you know on a i don't know an ig or an ib or one of the big thing you know you it'll, it'll take you several days even to get an account if if at all uh, you know uh 
Whereas with crypto, you can be up and running within minutes, or you, you know, on, on these exchanges, and and you can try you can try trading with ten dollars, you can try trading with fifty dollars. You don't have to put five thousand bucks in, and and so for us, you know, because we're facing the retail customers directly, you know, we're the ones running the comp- competition as an exchange, as, as opposed to the the brokers in, in the traditional space. And, and the prizes that you're giving away. Are- you know the the sums of money are, is is nothing to laugh at. You've got some big comp coming up shortly, don't you? It's like you're giving away million dollars in tether, or we do, yeah. So we've got a, a bunch of uh, weekly competitions which will start running in the next few weeks, and those are sort of uh, lead lead ups to this other one that you mentioned. And, and these are basically you know sort of hundred thousand dollars prize money during the week type competitions, very short ones, you know, based around a couple of hours of bracket trading and and uh, uh, su- such. And then that leads up to a, what is the million dollar team competition that we'll be we're planning and running. And and that those details are. Are being worked on right now. They will come out in in full shortly. And uh, yeah, it's it's basically a multi-team, you know, thousands of trader type format where where the total price money will be will be a million bucks. Now, one of the big points of difference of CoinFlex uh, versus other crypto exchanges is that you're a futures exchange, and those futures are physically delivered. Can you just break it down in simple terms why that actually matters? Absolutely. So if um, if we use the, the kind of traditional crypto futures product right now, these are perpetuals. And perpetuals means uh, they are contracts that never expire, they just keep trading. And uh, because they kind of move around, they have to be referenced to something. You know, how does a, you know, a, a perpetual get repriced? Well, it refers to sort of these external spot exchanges. There could be one, it could be five uh, uh, or more. And so uh, these spot exchanges that these perpetuals reference uh, could be, you know, at any particular time, could we have a very thin order book. And so a big whale, in the crypto term, whale meaning a, 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 a huge crypto holder, could come into one of these spot markets, put on a leverage play in the futures market to benefit from it, and then manipulate the market down or up. And so perpetuals are, have two big issues. One is huge manipulation risk. And the second thing is to keep these perpetuals in line with the underlying index, they use sort of hourly or eight hourly or four hourly interest rates. So that if, if, the, if this uh, perpetual is above the fair value, they'll charge longs a bunch of interest rates and, and to bring the discouraged buying to bring the futures back down to uh, fair value. And so you've got this huge, two huge forces working there the whole time, which which are not very attractive in our view. One is this constant risk of manipulation. And the other one is not knowing any certainty of um, what the, your funding costs are. And I can give you examples, like, for example, uh, on the funding costs right now, uh, you could uh, pay, you know, maybe pay even 30% a year in funding charges. So you could be long Bitcoin and Bitcoin moves 30% and you've made no money. Um which is just pretty horrific. And on, on the on the manipulation charge, you know, uh, uh, angle, there's been several in- incidences this year as well where a, a spot market has been moved by one kind of smallish order, and that's moved a futures market, which has got uh, billions quoted on it and creating a bunch of liquidation. So we've seen, you know, seen this time and time again. And so when we were designing the um, 
the our futures product, we went straight off the kind of traditional space where in the traditional space is physical futures. And and why do physical futures matter? Well, they matter because they deliver into a spot contract. So if someone manipulates the futures contract and you hold the underlying spot, you don't have to do anything about it because you will just be fine for delivery. And and you know, if you look at the traditional space where there are futures on uh, sorry, physical futures and cash settle futures for the same type of instrument, the futures, the cash, the, the physical futures owns, you know, 90% of the volume in open interest because of this certainty that seems, uh, uh, that sits in the background around manipulation or, or, or the minimization of, of manipulation to be more accurate. If someone wants to read up on this a little more, I presume there's info about it on the, the CoinFlex website. There is, and we've got blog posts around it and, and, and stuff. And, and, you know, I guess the proof is in the pudding. I mean, of the, of the new Western exchanges that have come on, they're, they're all physical. Uh, if you look at BACT, if you look at Aris X, you know, they're, they're all physical futures. And so we were the first physically delivered futures exchange in the world. And, and, uh, and we've got some big names coming in behind us in, in, in ICE. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, I'll dig up a link to uh, these these blog posts and I'll make sure they're in the show notes. Uh, easy to find if anyone wants to check that out. Awesome. Uh, now, besides being co-founder of CoinFlex, you're also the risk officer there. So being a risk officer of an exchange, what are the things which you monitor? Like what's most important that you have your eye on? It's really two things, margins of customers uh, and liquidity on the order book. Talk to me more about liquidity on the order book. Sure. So because we have physical futures and we don't reference external indices, we kind of reference you know, liquidations and, and other trades happen within our order book. Uh, and one of the big differences between ourselves and traditional uh, crypto exchanges rather than traditional uh, uh, traditional exchanges. On the crypto side, one of the big things we did at the start was not be a market maker our own book because we did not we did not want to be either be seen as a single dealer platform like some exchanges masquerade around right now. And almost certainly we did not want to trade against our own customers. So we um, you know, got a, you know, been going out and we spend a lot of money on a liquidity program. And so one of our main, main roles in the risk department is to make sure there's sufficient liquidity on all our different instruments to make sure that if there is a customer liquidation that we're handled in a, within, in, a, in an orderly manner. So, okay. So those are the two things which you're continually monitoring. Yep. Let's do one last question. Then we'll probably close things out. What do we got here? Let me just quickly skim over my notes. Hey, let me ask you this question just as a little bit of fun. If you were to return to trading today, how would you intend on trading crypto? Like where would you begin to look? What types of things would you be researching? I think it's I think the the still the very fascinating model in crypto is is the inter it's old-fashioned arbitrage. Because if although Bitcoin takes sort of 10 minutes to 30 minutes to an hour to kind of be able to move between exchanges, it, there is still a lot of friction in moving collateral between exchanges. And so there is still a lot of inter-exchange ARBs that go on around the same same set of products. And so the, the, the real challenge here, and then obviously a lot of HFT firms from the traditional space are now swarming over to crypto because of this, 
there is still decent arbs to be made for traders between, say, you know, a BTC product in, in uh, futures in one market versus another and managing those risks. Okay, cool. I always ask my guests at the end, uh, just the best place to follow them. But I know you're on LinkedIn. Um, are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. I'm not an active user. Um, okay. But CoinFlex handle is at uh, CoinFlex.com, all in words. Yeah, that's important. Don't go dot com. It's D-O-T-C-O-M. <laughs> Correct. Okay. And of course, uh, you can find out more info about CoinFlex. Uh, use my link, which I've been set up with as part of the sponsorship, uh, coinflex.com slash chat. Um, if you lo- use that link, uh, you actually save on fees. All right. I think we'll call it a wrap there. Absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast. Thank you for having us, Aaron. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.